right, well, let me encourage you to take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 2. As you're turning there, I just want to let you know that we had an incredible Sunday night. Last Sunday night, if you weren't with us, we had over 50 people join our church, a lot of new members. It's a great joy to welcome them into our body, into our fellowship. We had 10 baptisms, and it happened all right out here, just outside that corner of the tent. In fact, I'm still a little bit sore from uh, trying to pull up a couple of those bigger guys that took me down with them in the water. So we had a great time last Sunday night. Just want to say thanks to everybody who helped make that happen. And if you're, again, a new member here at our church now, we want to give you a special welcome as a new member of our church, tell you that we love you. We're thankful that you're here, and we can't wait to grow together with you. Also, want to let you know that yesterday we had an all-day meeting with our elder team. Uh, we're really encouraged that we were able to meet together all day, kind of like a planning meeting, a casting vision for the future meeting. Uh, it was such an encouraging time. A lot of, a lot of great conversations, a lot of great um, intimacy shared between our elder team, a lot of prayer for the future, a lot of kind of sorting out what's going on with the building and uh, future ministry opportunities with that. So we're excited to just let you know we're, we're on track with the building. It's looking good. We met with the builders this week. Uh, they're telling us we could get a certificate of occupancy as early as mid-February. So, you know, at one point is end of the year. Now they say to us mid-February, you know, whenever it happens, it happens. Uh, we're going to be here in this tent uh, for a couple more weeks. And then when this tent goes away, Lord willing, uh, we'll be back over on the North Campus. So we're sorting that out with the Master's University. So we'll be back over there kind of during the winter months. And so, uh, but it's kind of nice out here, nice and cold. I didn't know if we could do it in the cold. It's like 55, but we're doing it okay. You guys look warm and cozy. You all right? Okay, good. I see some blankets. I see some beanies. I see lots of uh, couples snuggling up real close to each other. It's all right. I like it. I like it. It's all good. All right. You're there, hopefully. Revelation, last book of the Bible. We're in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And this morning, we're looking at the fourth church that we've examined, or just the third. Can't keep count. It's the third church that we've examined, all right? And I'm calling this one the compromising church. The compromising church, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Here's what... We read here, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also have some of you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you. And soon, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning as we contemplate the words here recorded by John, the words of Christ making this revelation to him that he would share these writings with the seven churches of Asia Minor. We pray that today as a modern day church that we would take seriously both the encouragement and the rebuke 
that we'll hear this morning as Christ is addressing this compromising church of Pergamum. We desire this morning to learn much about what you want us to learn so that we might grow how you want us to grow and that each one of us would stand on your word today and that we would have deep conviction today and that we would want to give our lives completely sold out to you. And I pray that you would just bless us during this service that our conviction would grow deeper than ever before. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Watergate scandal marks one of the most famous compromises and the saddest occurrences in American politics. This political scandal occurred in the 1970s as a result of the June of 1972 break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C. President Richard Nixon and his administration attempted to cover up their involvement in this daunting crime. The FBI, however, chased the money trail and discovered that some of the cash found on the burglars of Watergate was connected to the committee for the re-election of President Richard Nixon. A year later... In July of 1973, evidence continued to mount against the president's staff in the ensuing investigations. It was eventually revealed that President Nixon had a tape recording system in his office and he had recorded many conversations. After a protracted series of bitter court battles, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the president had to hand over the tapes to the government investigators, and he reluctantly complied. Recordings from these tapes made it abundantly clear that the president himself knew about what had been attempted, and he had also known about the cover-up of the break-in. Facing near-certain impeachment in the House of Representatives and a strong possibility of conviction in the Senate, President Nixon became the only president to resign, and he did so on August the 9th, 1974. His successor, Vice President Gerald Ford, then issued a full pardon to Nixon. The scandal resulted in the indictment, conviction, and and incarceration of 43 people, including dozens of top Nixon administrative officials like the late Charles Colson. One such official Jeb Stuart Magruder, who was the head of the committee to re-elect the president, pled guilty to one account of conspiracy, and then he said this, quote, we had conned ourselves into thinking we weren't doing anything really wrong. And by the time we were doing things that were illegal, we had lost control. We had gone from poor ethical behavior into illegal activities without even realizing it, close quote. Compromise. That's what we're talking about this morning. No one ever plans for it, but the temptation comes to us all. And without constantly depending on the Lord and fighting the fight of faith, we all have the tendency to give in, at least just a little. And in a world of compromise, where that has become the norm, We have to stand against the grain in order to have true Christian character. It's now more popular 
to tolerate someone's sin than to confront that sin and call them out. It's more popular to accept and to celebrate sin than it is to look to Christ to cleanse us. And I'm telling you as a church this morning, it's time for us as the church to make a change. We can't look to the politics of our nation to be the backbone of the character of this land. It's time for us to stand up for what is right. And it is time for us to stand up and go against the culture. And it's time for us to allow God to speak his truth from his word and let every man be a liar. This morning, we're going to look at the church of Pergamum, which struggled with giving in to compromise. A church that was commended for their tenacity for truth and yet nevertheless had a weak spot in their armor where it allowed some of its members to be trapped into the snare of Satan. And only Christ could set them free. This morning marks church number three in our series on the seven churches of Revelation. We've been following this regular outline with each one of these churches and so I'll jump right into that five-part outline with you right now, we we'll first look at the setting or the speaker of this church in verse 12. And the first blank there, I've already filled it in for you, is the city. The city. We're talking about verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Let's talk about the city of Pergamum. It's located about 55 miles north of Smyrna, where we were last week. So the courier had to travel about 55 miles from that church to this next church, maybe about 100 miles total now from Ephesus. And unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was not a port city because it was about 20 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. Pergamum was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was the place from where the Roman Empire really ruled this part of the world. And politically, to control Pergamum was to control Asia Minor. Pergamum serves today as the Turkish city of Bergamum. The word Pergamum literally means a citadel. A citadel is a fortress typically on high ground protecting or dominating a city. And much of Pergamum was built on a large hill towering some 1,000 feet over the plain. So impressive is this site that even in modern times that the famed 19th century archaeologist Sir William Ramsey commented, quote, Beyond all other sites in Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city, the home of authority. The rocky hill on which it stands is so huge and dominates the broad plain of the river valley so proudly and boldly, close quote. Pergamum boasted of a huge library, second only to the library of Alexandria, and it contained some 200,000 handwritten volumes. This library was so impressive that Mark Antony later had it sent to his lover, Queen Cleopatra of Egypt, as a special gift. Without readily available papyrus plant, which was in Egypt, Pergamum had to use parchment, which was made of treated animal skins for their writing material. Pergamum was actually the first area known for using animal skins for, for this writing material, and it's where the English word parchment actually derives from. And because of this library, Pergamum was an important city of culture and learning. There was a famous physician named Galen, who was born and studied there in Pergamum. He was known to be second only to the doctor Hippocrates. 
Pergamum was an important center of worship for four of the main deities of the Greco-Roman world. On top of that 1,000-foot-high hill overlooking the city, those four deities had special temples built just to them, one to Zeus, one to Athena, one to Dionysus, and one to Asclepius. But the overshadowing of the worship of these false gods was the worship of the emperor himself. And like Smyrna, Pergamum fell deep into emperor worship. In fact, it had its strongest grip possibly in this city. In the other cities, citizens had to give a public testimony to Caesar, uh, and they had to do that once a year. But here in Pergamum, imperial idolatry was a daily lifestyle. A pinch of incense burned in worship of the emperor was an everyday occurrence. Well, that's a little bit about the city of Pergamum. Let's look now at the church there because we're writing to the angel of the church, the messenger who's taking this writing to your next blank, the church there of Pergamum. Not much in scripture is recorded about the church in Pergamum. According to Acts 16, verses 7 through 8, Paul traveled through Mesia on his second missionary journey, and Pergamum was located in that area, and likely the Ephesian church was responsible for planting this church as well as all the other churches of Asia Minor. The Bible does record that while Paul was busy planting and preaching the word in Ephesus, that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Acts 19.10. No doubt the believers of this church were fighting an uphill battle, and were facing persecution from both the Jews and the Gentiles who lived there. So we have a city, we have a church, and then next we look at the characteristic of Christ emphasized. And again, this is kind of how Jesus approaches each, each of these seven churches. He talks to the city, uh, he talks to the church in the city, and then there's a, a certain characteristic of Christ that's revealed. And so here Jesus is revealing himself in a, a unique and a clear way, almost in a way that would, that would kind of foreshadow what it is he wants to say to that church. He's got something in particular that he wants to say. And so here at the end of verse 12, it says, the words of him who holds the sharp two-edged sword. And so we know there's a need for that sharp two-edged sword, and this is something that is being held by the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Roman culture, the sword was a symbol of power and authority. And in that day, Rome had the political and military power and authority to do whatever it wanted. And with this in mind, Jesus is pictured holding this sharp two-edged sword that is put on display in this verse. And I believe that it's probably indicating a little bit about his judicial authority to pronounce and to execute judgment. And with this sword drawn, Jesus Christ is pictured as the divine warrior, defeating his enemies in battle and pronouncing judgment upon them. Is this not the picture that we see at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you'll turn with me to the very end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19, we see a similar picture of Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation when Jesus returns in all of his glory. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, 
John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword." with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so I love that picture here. We're seeing it already in Revelation 2 that Jesus has that sword, and we see it again in Revelation 19. And so the church of Pergamum needed to be reminded that Jesus was the unrivaled Lord of his church, and he was the one who had the power over life and over death, and his word would be final, and his law would be binding, and his rule is absolute. And he needs to communicate that, as we'll see here, to the church of Thyatira. We also, or the church of Pergamum, excuse me. We also know that Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, also tells us a little bit about that sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Why a two-edged sword, you might ask? Because it cuts both ways. Christ has the power over life and death. He possesses authority to bless and to curse, to save and to condemn. And why does Jesus reveal himself in this way to this church? Well, Steve Lawson asks this question, quote, as his two-edged sword cuts both ways, two reasons stand out. Lawson continues, the first is positive. The church is already suffering persecution under the sword of Rome. No doubt intimidation and fear were gaining footholds in their hearts. They must be reminded that an authority far stronger than Rome was being wielded over their heads. And despite Rome's fear tactics, Christ is still the one ultimately in control of all world powers. He says there's a second reason here, a second reason about the sword. One is to show that Christ is more powerful than Rome. The second reason is a negative reason. As we shall soon learn, this church was tolerating false teachers. They needed to be reminded that there is an unchanging standard, God's word, by which God measures all truth. And they must defend sound doctrine. And if they don't remain true to the faith, they will face severe discipline from the hand of Christ himself. Close quote. And so we understand here again, Jesus, as the supreme authority over the church of Pergamum, has some encouraging to do, and he has some confronting to do, and he's going to do it with this two-edged sword. And what a, what a sobering picture of Christ. We often think of Jesus as the good shepherd, and he is. And we often think of Jesus as the Lamb of God, and he is. But we also need to be reminded this morning that he is also a holy judge and that he is the lion of Judah and that he is the avenger of wrong and that he is the judge of all the earth. 
and that every church must see this Christ and not one of their own making. With that in mind, let's look at our second bullet point or heading, I should say. Number two, the strengths. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Your next blank here says, hold fast to the name of Christ. Notice here in verse 13 that Jesus says, I know. He's saying, basically, I know what you're going through. He identifies with Pergamum personally with the hardships that that church was experiencing. He knows what it's like to go through persecution. He had personally also been tempted by the devil himself for uh, when he was out in the wilderness. He was assaulted by Satan when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was bruised by the devil on his hill. But despite the difficult circumstances in which they found themselves, the committed believers of Pergamum courageously maintained their God-given faith. And so here at first in verse 13, he's saying, hey, I'm commending you for holding fast to the name of Christ. He's commending them. He's, they're holding fast against what? Well, here in this verse, it says they're holding fast against Satan's throne. Many suggestions have been given as to the identification of what he's talking about in this verse, holding fast against Satan's throne. Some identify Satan's throne as Rome, the capital of the empire. Others uh, would say it might be a reference to the altar of Zeus, which was a magnificent structure that was also shaped like a throne there on the top of the hill in Pergamum. Others connect Satan's throne with the worship of the god of Asclepius. This was Pergamum's own god, Asclepius, who was the god of healing. And his snake-like form was basically the image and the idol that they would worship. And that snake-like form is also uh, where we get the medical symbol for medicine today. You know, that snake wrapped around its, the pole, it has its origins here in Pergamum, which was a great center of, of a medical care. So worshipers, so he's the God of healing, Asclepios, so worshipers would come into this temple to be healed. And since there's that snake wrapped around the pole, the pagan practice of healing contains snakes. Snakes roamed wild throughout this temple to Asclepius. The worshipers were encouraged to lay down on the floor and to allow these snakes to crawl over their bodies. Who's ready to sign up for that treatment? You hear? You're like, I need, I, I'm feeling like I need a detox. <laughs> Don't go to Pergamum, all right? <laughs> so these snakes would crawl over their bodies. Healing power was believed to be in the touch of these serpents. And such a picture would undoubtedly remind Christians of Satan from the Garden of Eden. For any or for all of these reasons, Pergamum justifiably could be called the city where Satan's throne is. In the midst of those difficult and trying circumstances, believers held fast to the name of Christ, and the true believers would not be seduced into superstitious culture who looked to the works of Satan over the works of Christ to be their true healer. So I want to ask you this morning, are you holding fast to Christ today? Or are you letting the devil slither all over your body? 
Deuteronomy 10.20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. We can be reminded this morning, we don't fear Satan, and we don't serve Satan. And for those of us who are in Christ, holding on to Christ, we will not fall into his snare. We will not serve the cursed serpent who is thrown out of heaven. Instead, let's hold fast to Christ. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So part of what Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamum, part of what I believe we need to receive today in this context would be that we would be reminded that as the church, we don't need to waver. Don't waffle. Don't wallow in the mud. Hold fast to Christ who is faithful to deliver you from the foe. One little word shall fail him. Martin Luther talked about that word being Jesus. Just one word. He has to flee because he has no power over you because there is power in the name of Jesus. And Jesus has given you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and therefore you can shut the door to hell. Now listen, not a charismatic, but I used to be, all right? But I was never in one of those churches where snakes were going all over the congregation. And we don't need snakes, and we don't need bad theology, but we have to understand that we are in for the fight of our lives. And it really starts with you as an individual being in the Word of God, being held up by the Word of His power, and fighting that fight personally, and then as a family, and then as a church every single day. If anything, the climate is showing us right now is that we've got to hold on to Christ. And that's our next blank there, holding firm to the faith. As he continues to encourage them a little bit, he's saying, you hold fast to my name. He says that they're, they're hanging on, even like this faithful witness Antipas. So here in this church, we're saying that these born-again believers did not deviate from their fidelity to Christ and to the central truths of the Christian faith. They held firm to the faith because they did not deny Christ even in the midst of anguish and persecution. And we must do the same. We must hold firm to the faith as well. As 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 23 reminds us, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We got to hold on to Jesus with all that we are. We must look to what is being said. You, you, you've got to test everything. You've got to abstain from evil and hold fast to what is good. That means we have to do that with our whole spirit and with our whole body to be kept blameless until Jesus comes back. We're to do, as James 4, 7 says, to submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil, and he will flee. And so these believers, there's a mixed bag at Pergamum, like there is in every church, but the believers there are being commended, and they're being, your next blank says, they're being faithful even to death. There's one man mentioned in this verse. His name is Antipas, and he is known to have been especially bold in his faith. The name Antipas literally means against all. And that's what he was. He was against all of Satan's schemes. He was against all forms of superstitious idolatry. He was against all untruth. And this one man, Antipas, was possibly the pastor of the church. He refused to yield 
to the political evil of the day. He was one of those leaders of Christ who was resisting the local pressure to compromise and to give in to deity worship of the emperor of Rome. We don't know exactly what the issue was, but we do know that Jesus said that Antipas was his witness, his faithful one. What an incredible compliment to be a witness of Christ, a witness to the gospel. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let each one of us also lay aside of every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising of the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Jesus did. That's what he's called us to do, to look to these witnesses of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And we understand that so many times in the Bible, it connects the word witness with the idea of a martyr. Antipas was a great witness, but he was a martyr. Hebrews 11 has a lot of people in the hall of faith. Many of them were killed. If you're going to be a witness for Christ, that means you need to be willing to be a martyr for Christ. These words in the ancient church were synonymous you're a witness, you might be a martyr. To be a witness in reality is giving your life for the testimony of that which you believe, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Antipas did just that. His faithfulness and his courage led him to give his life. And that ought to be an encouragement and a rebuke to us today if we're tempted to compromise on good doctrine of what the gospel teaches for any reason. We're not going to be a church that compromises. We're going to stand true to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're moving now to our third heading, which is the sin or the suffering where Jesus says, your next blank, but I have this against you, verses 14 and 15, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might not so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Jesus says, I have this against you. No doubt that the church of Pergamum was undergoing intense suffering, but they had also compromised to some unacceptable sin. And Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Remember, he had one thing against Ephesus, and that was they had lost their first love. With Pergamum, he's getting involved a little bit more. So, no, no, there's a couple things going on here that I need to address about what's going on in your church. I have a, a few things against you, not just one, but a few of them. And that ought to send a shiver up our spine. I, I don't want to ever hear the words of my Lord say, hey, I got a couple things against you, a couple things I need to point out. Some of the believers there of Pergamum, if they were indeed believers, had been led astray, some of them. Notice, he didn't say all of them, not the whole church, but there's some there compromising. And so Jesus was rebuking the faithful members who were not dealing with the compromising members correctly. For whatever reason, it appears as though there were, they, they, they were too easy on and they were too, 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 much, uh, too, too much just giving them space instead of confronting and dealing with what they need to deal with. And so Jesus is writing this church 
to the true church, because those who left, you know, they're not part of the church, but those who are the church, he's like, you got to deal with this. you got to be reminded that Jesus knows that one apple ruins the whole bunch, that a little leaven affects the whole batch, that bad company corrupts good morals, and it was time for this situation to be put to an end. And so what is it he's talking about? As Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Well, we see at least two here, one in verse 14, one in verse 15. Your next blank says, talks about the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam. Let me just summarize this for you. But if you want to jot down numbers, I think it's there for you in your notes, chapters 22 through 25. This is a very famous story from the Old Testament that he's referring to here. Numbers 22 through 25, we read about that Old Testament prophet named Balaam. And during the time of Israel's wilderness wanderings, God's chosen people defeated the Ammonites. Moab seemed to be the next nation to fall to the children of Israel, and so they got scared. And the king of Moab, his name was Balak, knew that no army could stop the army of the Israelites, and so he decided to find a prophet for hire to help him out. And out of desperation, Balak, the king of Moab, offered Balaam, a Jewish prophet, Hebrew prophet, he offered him a contract to ruin the Israelites. In effect, he said, I've got an assignment for you. I want you to curse the Israelites so that they cannot succeed against us, and I'll make you an offer that you cannot refuse. So yielding to temptation, Balaam, the Hebrew prophet, sold out to the devil, and he began to offer curses against God's people three separate times. He tried to curse the people of God, and three separate times, blessings, not curses, came out. So Balak, the wicked king of Moab, was upset about this. He's furious, but try as he might, Balaam, the prophet, was completely unsuccessful. You can't serve both God and money. So in his frustration, Balaam, who was the king, devised this, in, uh, excuse me, Balaam the prophet. I know it gets confusing. Just think Balak with a K, king, and Balaam. So in time, Balaam devised an ingenious plan. And, you, if you, and his plan went something like this. If you can't beat them, then join them. Meaning this, Balaam knew that God had forbid the intermarrying of his holy people with the unholy tribes around them. And Balaam, the Hebrew prophet, thought that if he, could cur- if, he, if he wasn't able to curse the Israelites, he would get God to curse the Israelites by getting them to fall into a grievous sin. And so Balaam hatched this insidious plot. Balaam would put a stumbling block in front of God's people. And so he instructed the godless king, Balak, to place sensuous women before the marching armies of Israel. And let these beautiful and promiscuous women lure the Israelites off their course and into sin. And God would then judge the Israelites for their sin of adultery and fornication. So Balak did as Balaam suggested, placing enticing women before the Israelite men. And unfortunately, it was more than they could handle. And because of the Israelites' lack of 
solid faith for some of them. They did not keep their eyes on God. They succumbed to the temptation and they wilted under the seductive power and they began to party with these pagan women. And before they knew it, they laid down with these wild dogs and they got up with the devil's fleas. Soon they began to worship these pagan women's idols and they even made sacrifices to false idols in pagan ceremonies. And needless to say, the result was devastating, and God did indeed punish Israel severely as he slew 24,000 men. What Balaam couldn't do, sin did. And so the teaching of Balaam was to compromise with the world. It was a mixing of holy things with unholy things. The teaching of Balaam that he's referring to here in verse 14 is the idea that you can have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. But you got to remember today that that just simply isn't true. It just takes one link has to break before the whole chain is useless. Only one cancer cell needs to become malignant in order for the whole body to suffer. And so it is with the church. One small pocket of sin will infect the whole body. So I want to ask you this morning, Placerita Bible Church, how about you? Are you being tempted this morning to flirt with pornography? Are you being tempted this morning to be drawn to somebody that you're not married to? Are you right now emotionally embracing someone other than your wife or your husband? Are you sleeping with someone who is not your spouse? Because if you're playing with fire, you will be burned. And today is a great day to confess your sin and to come clean before the Lord. Today is a great day to say, I'm sick and tired of compromise, and I need to lay down at the altar my sin my idolatry, and I need to ask God for his forgiveness so that I can be a pure and holy vessel that Christ would use for his church. Don't be seduced by the voice of Balaam this morning. Don't be seduced by the sins that so easily entangle you. In addition to this, there was a second sin affecting the church of Pergamon. It's similar to the first one. This is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's your next blank. So we read a little bit about Balaam's compromising teaching that led to seduction and sin. And now we're reading about the Nicolaitans. So also, verse 15, some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I've told you already the Nicolaitans were teaching destructive heresy, which was basically a license to sin, which was very similar to this teaching of Balaam. Different bottles, but the same poison. You may remember we mentioned those Nicolaitans who Christ had commended the church of Ephesus for their hatred for the deeds of the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2 verse 6. It is thought that Nicholas was the deacon mentioned in Acts 6 5. Apparently he had defected from the faith teaching that a believer has the moral license to do whatever he wants. And that's what some people are doing today in the church. It's called grace. And they begin to abuse grace and say, it's okay if I go a little over here and a little over there because you don't have to be so rigid. God loves me just like I am. And that's a beautiful truth that we love. 
But it can also be a deceiving doctrine if you live that way, meaning that you're willing to compromise and nibble just a little bit on the delicacies of the world instead of devoting yourself, all of you, to Christ and to him alone. And that's what the Nicolaitans were teaching. God will forgive you. It's okay. Just a little here and a little there. Nobody's perfect. I'm not as bad as those people at work. I'm not as bad as those people on TV. I'm a good man. I'm a good woman. It's okay if I just do this a little bit. But Jesus wants us to know that somehow trying to compromise between the Christian life and the cultural customs of our world is impossible. And in reality, the teaching of the Nicolaitans combined these Christian ideas with immorality and idolatry. Isn't it amazing how often in the Bible these two sins go hand in hand, immorality and idolatry? I would like to suggest to you this morning that the same is true in our lives today, that idolatry oftentimes leads to immorality. What exactly is idolatry? Well, idolatry is anything or anyone in your life that is more important to you than God. Idolatry is loving anything more than you love God. Idolatry is fearing anything more than you fear God. Idolatry is serving anything more than you serve God. Idolatry is desiring anything more than you desire God. It is anything that comes in between you and God. And I'm telling you, my friends, that fornication and adultery whether it's done in your mind or in your body, is idolatry. In that moment, you are connecting your body or your heart with something other than that which would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. An idol can also be a statue carved out of marble, but it can also be a checkbook made out of paper, a car made out of metal, a boat made out of fiberglass, a house made out of wood. An idol can be a degree framed and mounted. It can be a cause joined and served. It can be a talent mastered and employed. It can be a physique that is developed and chiseled. It can be a weed rolled up and smoked. It can be anything or anyone that occupies first place in your life instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Compromise is a battle against idolatry. That we began to tone down that white-hot passion for holiness, and we began to flirt around with the things of the world. The Apostle John had written in his epistle, 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world or anything that is in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, in 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So how are we doing, church? Placerita Bible Church, please accept my challenge to you this morning that for the love of God and for the sake of the purity of this church, Come clean. If you're walking with the devil, let every idol go. Let every girlfriend be done with. Let every fantasy flee from your minds as you heed the words of Christ this morning. May the teachings of Balaam not have a devastating impact on this church. One drop of poison can ruin a whole congregation. 
How about you this morning? Are you living a double life? Are you being unfaithful to your spouse? Are you getting involved with anyone else? Are you having an affair? Are you even thinking about having an affair? I pray that the fear of God would be in your heart this morning as we read this rebuke to the church of Pergamum. 1 Peter 4.17 says, It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? But remember, Jesus' rebuke here in Revelation 2 is primarily pointed at the believers who were faithful but who were tolerating this mess. And just as the church of Pergamum, there are many churches today tolerating sexual sin in the name of love and of Christian charity. Who am I to judge them, they say? Aren't we all sinners? And therefore, many churches promote sexual compromise. Again, listen to the words of Steve Lawson from his book, Final Call, which I've been studying for this series. He says this, quote, Many churches and denominations are sanctioning the ordination of homosexuals into the ministry. They are even establishing homosexual churches. Other churches are approving divorces without biblical grounds. They are also sanctioning remarriages without biblical grounds. Still others are quickly reinstating immoral leaders back into their pulpits. They are condoning people living together. Many are approving of abortion as a form of birth control. Most are failing to discipline unrepentant church members who are sexually unfaithful to their spouses. They are tolerating pornography in the private lives of their leadership. Close quote. Guys, don't just think because we're a Bible church who holds dear to the doctrines that we treasure that are taught throughout the Bible that there's not men and women in this tent on this morning, who are either struggling with or living in this sin. And God forbid that those things would ever be true in this church. That is the immoral teaching of Balaam. In this church, our church must not and cannot condone these perversions. Instead, we must follow Christ who wields his sword with that double edge, both rebuking and reminding us that he's in control, not our culture. We've got to understand that Christ wants to cleanse his church. That's why he's writing these letters. He's not completely condemning Pergamum. He's saying to the believers, you've got to deal with this. And if this is something that you're struggling with, then you've got to, the next heading says, well, what's the solution? The solution to this, what's the, how are we going to handle all this? Verse 16 tells us, therefore, repent. Listen to me. Your next blank says, repent of your sin. Repentance is always the solution. There's always a way out. You say, well, I just can't help it. I'm addicted. No, you can repent. You can change. God changes people. And like the church of Ephesus, Jesus' command could not be any clearer. Repent. And after correctly making the diagnosis, our great physician now prescribes the only cure open heart surgery. My friends, this is not a subtle change, but this is a whole new way of life. Repentance is a change of mind that calls for a change of heart and a change in your actions. And it leads to a change in your will, a change which is produced by the grace of God. And Jesus is saying, in effect, stop 
doing what you were doing and start following me. Turn your life around. Stop longing after the world and start preferring righteousness. Reverse your field. Reroute your life. Reboot your mindset. Live your life for the glory of God. And for some of you, that means that today, that you need to confess your sins, that you've been running and hiding long enough. And today is that day. For some of you, that means that today you need to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And my friends, that's why we're gathered together today, because we have a righteous God who imputes his righteousness over our sin, and he removes our sin, and he throws it as far as the east is from the west, and you don't have to be that person anymore. But you can come. This day, to a living Savior who died for you, who shed his blood, and who says, I love you, and I bought you, and you're better than that because I'm going to redeem you and rescue you from a life of sin. If that's you today, this is your day. This is your day to come to Christ and to realize that God says in Isaiah 118, let us come and reason together that though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What a beautiful passage. We need to to burn those bridges. We need to be renewed in our minds through the scripture. We need to come to counseling. You need discipleship. You might need to sit down with your small group leader or an elder or someone in our biblical counseling team and get down to business because Jesus gives strong words here. Notice what Jesus doesn't say in verse 16. What Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, that's okay. He doesn't say, I have unlimited grace to continue to apply it to those who continue in their unrepentant sin. doesn't say that. He doesn't say, it's okay, you can can just live like that the rest of your life and I'll cover it with my grace. That's not what he says. He says to repent so that you can be changed And that as you're changed, he will cover whatever it is that you have done. And he's telling us in verse 16, repent. And then he does offer a little bit more threat. If I could say it that way, your next blank says reap the consequences. Because he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them meaning those in the church who did compromise, I will come to you soon, war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon like a parent with a disobedient child. And I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. John MacArthur writes in his book on the seven churches of Revelation, quote, the entire church faced the battle sword of Christ's judgment, the heretics for practicing their heresy and iniquity, and the rest of the church for tolerating it. The change in pronouns from you to them reflects an underlying Hebrew idiom commonly found in the Septuagint. Both pronouns refer to the entire church. In other words, he's saying he's addressing the church in whole. Those who are in sin need the rebuke. Those who are not in sin need to be rebuking those and obviously standing guard that they don't fall into that same compromise. This is a a Romans 1 issue. We're all familiar with Romans 1 about the seriousness of being given over to practicing homosexual sin. 
And then you have to understand at the very end of Romans chapter 1, verse 32, it says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice those things, such things, deserve to die. So those who live in unrepentant heterosexual sin, those who live in unrepentant homosexual sin, those who live in unrepentant any sin, he lives, gives long lists there at the end of Romans chapter 1. He says they deserve to die, comma. You say, well, I'm not doing that. Okay, great. I'm glad you're not living in unrepentant sin. But he says those who live that way deserve to die, comma. They not only who do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You want to know why we're against gay marriage? Because we don't give hearty approval to those who practice what the Bible calls sin. You know why we're against a boyfriend and a girlfriend living together in a sexual relationship? And we'd say, oh, that's okay. They're in college. They're just having some fun. No, we don't give approval to what God doesn't give approval to. And if we somehow give approval by turning our eyes, allowing it to happen. Well, we don't want to get in because we'll seem like we're that judgmental church who's always kicking out people all the time. Now listen, we're Christ's church. He's the head of this church, and he's going to purify this church, and it needs to start with each one of us, and we need to lovingly confront that which we see, which is sin, lest we fall under the same condemnation, not for practicing the sin, but for giving hearty approval to those who do practice it. Our last heading this morning, number five, the summation of it all, verse 17, Christ ends each one of these letters in a similar way, kind of giving some final counsel. That's your next blank, the final counsel. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is in effect saying, listen up and follow what it is that I'm telling you. This is for everybody. It's not just for the pastors and the elders and the deacons and the small group leaders and the ministry women's, uh, women's leaders and youth group leaders. This is for everybody. He's saying, listen up. If you've got ears, if you have a spiritual awareness, listen up and hear what it is that I'm saying. And as you hear what I'm saying, I want you to put it into practice. The Bible never says, oh, just hear it and store up knowledge and keep that separate from regular life. No, he's saying, hear it, and then I want you to obey it and live it out. And then he says that to the faithful overcomer, the middle of verse 17, to the one who conquers, we're calling that the conqueror, the overcomer, the faithful one. That describes every Christian. There's no two levels of Christianity. I just want to get saved and baptized, and that's it. No, you get saved, you get baptized, and you're going to be sanctified for the rest of your life, growing in Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. That's what God's calling us to. And in, in that, you are an overcomer. This phrase, to him who overcomes, encompasses all believers. And Christ promises these to the faithful members of the church of Pergamum. And then he gives this forever promise. Your last point there. The, the, and then this has, in this particular address, has three subpoints under the forever promise. You ready? Number one, the hidden manna. You see where he says there in verse 17, to the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Mm, that sounds good. Manna was that honey-flavored bread given to the Israelites as their sustenance while they were out in the wilderness. Some people refer to it as angel food cake. God wanted to lead the Israelites away from every 
provision except his own that he gave them by grace. And according to Exodus 16.33, the Israelites were actually told to take some of that manna and put it into the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 16.33, and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout all generations. You said, well, why would they keep that manna for, through, through all generations, by the way, it was lost probably at the fall of 586 when the Babylonians destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant has not been seen since, so we don't have that today. But that manna was to represent Christ, who tells us that himself, who said, I am the bread of life, John 6, 51, and that whole context is this whole conversation about, but Moses gave us manna. What do you have? In John uh, 6, 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. And so Christ says, I'm your sustenance. I'm your manna. You don't need angel food cake. You need me. I'm here to give you life. Jesus is our spiritual provision. He is our spiritual sustenance. And so Jesus is saying, this is for the Christian. You have this hidden manna that's just waiting for you in Christ. Not only do you have that hidden manna, number two, there's a white stone that's referred to here. I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. Now, I believe that the best understanding of the white stone, and there's a couple different thoughts about it, but in light of the Roman custom of awarding white stones to the victors in athletic events, a white stone, oftentimes inscribed with the athlete's name, awarded him admittance into a special awards banquet. And so in this view, Christ promises overcomers into the entrance and into the reward and into the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's like, I'm going to give you Christ, the hidden manna. I'm going to give you an admittance, this white stone, so that you can get into heaven. And that when you're in heaven, you'll be able to worship me for the rest of your days. And you won't need anything in this world any longer because I'm going to, number three, give you a new name. He's going to give you a white stone, a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We cannot know what that name is. He says no man knows what that name is. It, it does seem that this new name somehow identi uh, identifies, indicates a new identity, a new standing, a, a new beginning, possibly believers, new status in Christ, a personal intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're given your own stone, your own new name, it's not coming collectively to Christ in your family or in your church. It's you as an individual saying, I need Christ. I need that manna, and I need that stone, and I need a new name. Pergamum, the compromising church. You know, compromise never shows its face for what it really is. It may be easy for others to see but for the one who is compromising, it's not so easy. For them, compromise always projects itself as no big deal. It's just a little white lie, or I'm just having a little fun, or it's perfectly harmless, you might think. And so it seemed to the church of Pergamum, and perhaps that seems it to be that way for you this morning, but I want you to know today that compromise never occurs quickly. Just as water erodes, compromise 
erodes one insidious drop at a time until there is a comfortable trickle and then an acceptable stream and then an uncontrolled flood and the flood never results in greater personal purity but it always leads to deeper moral depravity and that's the wisdom of taking our our, our focus off of what we are doing and putting it on the one from whom we are doing it is what God's calling us to do this morning. Stop looking at what you're doing and start looking to Christ. Start looking to Jesus. May Christ this day wield his sharp two-edged sword to cut away all our deception and to rescue us from all forms of compromise. May he be today your hidden manna and your white stone and give you a new name. And in order for that to happen, you've got to be willing to lay down your pride and confess your sin before God. And so after we sing this last song, I'm inviting you this morning, if you're here and you don't know Christ, we're going to have people standing right here after the service. And if you need to come to Christ this morning, God has gripped your heart. Maybe it was earlier in the sermon. Don't let it cool off. Allow that conviction to bring you to a point of repentance and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, but you're messing around, I'd love to talk to you. Our elder team is available to talk to you. We have counselors who would love to serve you. But Christ has your number this morning. And if he's dialed it up, I want to encourage you this morning not to leave this tent before you do business that you need to do with God. And I just want to remind you, he's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. Doesn't matter how many times you've fallen. Doesn't matter how many times you've failed. He's here this morning through his word in our presence to take you back to himself. Won't you come this morning and make it right with him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word today to be challenged by the words of Christ to the church of Pergamum. Lord, for some of us, we need to make a change on this very day. God, for some of us, we need to come clean and confess some things that are going on in our lives this very day. That might be, mean between a husband and a wife. That might mean between a, a, a child and a parent. That might mean between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. God, some of us today need to make sure that before we leave this tent that we're willing to get right with you. I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts today, that you would help us not to be afraid. Let not the fear of man rule over this tent this morning, but, but rather a healthy fear of God. And we just want to thank you that it's your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. And we just want to thank you that you've given us this day and this moment to gather, to gather, to worship you. But we want to do it as a pure church. God, we know that there's others here in this tent that we need to deal with some people that we know with, that we know that are dealing with some of these sins. And that you're calling us not to turn our head on it any longer, but to ask hard questions and to show love and grace and to be willing to extend mercy, but nevertheless to deal with what needs to be dealt with. And we pray that we would do it out of our love for you and our desire to be obedient and our desire to be holy as you are holy. So have your way, God, in our church, in each and every heart this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.